All right. Well, we have been um, we've been doing a series in January. We'll, next Sunday will be the last one. Um, on call, uh, it's called identifiable. We're speaking about each week about different kinds of love that help identify followers of Jesus. In other words, people should be able to look uh, at this kind of thing in our lives, our expressing of concern for others and for the Lord, uh, that tips people off. I believe that person might be a follower of Jesus. And so we've talked about a variety of things. We've talked about uh, the kind of love for Christ that leads us to talk to other people about Jesus. Last week we talked about the uh, the whole refugee and immigrant piece. Uh, today we're going to talk about money. Uh, the title of this message is Ex- Expensive Love. So uh, I usually warn people when I'm going to talk about money. We typically just do this once a year. Uh, I didn't warn you. Sorry about that. Uh, so if, you, if this is a real problem for you, I know some people think that the church is only after their money. So if you feel like that, um, you feel free to leave during the prayer. Nobody will ever know you're gone because everybody has their heads bowed and eyes closed. So let me, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll dive in. Father, thank you for our Savior. And uh, we think about the wealth that he left behind in order to come here to earth. Paul says that um, he became poor uh, for us on our behalf. And um, I think most of us would acknowledge, I I certainly would, hold tightly to my wallet, my my money, my stuff. And yet I see a Savior who did not do that. And uh, I pray that if we have any kind of instinctive barriers to um, hearing from you something that you might want us to do differently, that they would be dismantled this morning, that you would um, break through any heart that's cold and um, we really be open to hearing what the scriptures say. We'd be open to hearing what the Holy Spirit says to us. Um, I pray that you would help me to speak in such a way that does not, does not kind of pile on this stereotype that some people have that, uh, that Christians are just always looking for money um, and rather to, to see this great privilege that we have of partnering with you and advance of the gospel and, and revealing you through our kindness and generosity to other people in need. Um, so open our hearts, Lord. I, I pray against the enemy uh, who desperately wants us to keep focused on ourselves when it comes to money and stuff. And I pray that you would bind him this morning, that you would muzzle him, and that um, we might rather hear the Holy Spirit instead. In Jesus' name, amen. Gonna have Lauren show you a video clip from a movie um, called The End. This is an old movie, Burt Reynolds, 1978. And just to tell you the background, Burt is trying. It's kind of a dark comedy. Uh, he's been trying to commit suicide. He's not been very successful. He's not been successful at it at all. I guess you can't be sort of successful at that. And uh, so this is kind of his like das- last desperate attempt. He swims out to what looks like a bay swims out to the middle of the bay, he's just going to drown. And he goes out there and he goes under and he's looking up at the surface of the water and he suddenly changes his mind and comes back to the surface. Now he's not sure he has enough strength to swim back to land. So um, just take a listen, it's fun.
I can never make it. Help me, Lord. Please. I promise not to try and kill myself anymore. Save me, and I swear I'll be a better father. I'll be a better man. I'll be a better everything. All I ask is, make me a better swimmer. Oh, God. I can't do this to Julie. We can't do this to Julie. to obey every one of the Ten Commandments. I shall not kill. I shall not commit adultery. I shall not. I, uh, I'll learn the Ten Commandments and then I'll obey every one of them. Just get me back to the beach. I'll be honest in business. I promise not to sell lakeside lots unless there's a lake around. I want to see another sunrise. I want to see another sunset. It was a mistake, God. I never really wanted to kill myself. I just wanted to get your attention. Help me make it. I'll give you 50% of everything I make. 50%, God. I want to point out that nobody gives 50%. I'm talking gross, God! I think I'm gonna make it! You won't regret this, Lord! I'll obey every commandment! I'll see my parents more often! No more cheating in business once I get rid of those nine acres in the desert. And I'm gonna start Donate that 10% right away. I know I said 50%, Lord. But 10% to start. If you don't want your 10%, then don't take it. I know it was you that saved me. But it was also you that made me sick. was a little rough. Did you catch what was going on? He's promising God 50%. But once he sees he's going to make it, I'll give you 10. Uh, let's start off with 10. 80% reduction like that when I desperately need God. And if I die, you know, if I die, 50% isn't going to do me any good anyway. I'll commit that to you, Lord. But now that I'm going to maybe live, I'm going to need more of that. And so I'll give you, I'll give you 10%. Uh, by the way, when we talk about giving here, I have to, um, uh, I have to say from uh, my position as one of the staff here in Keystone, uh, how appreciative we are of your generosity. Now, uh, over the years that Keystone's uh, been uh, around, we, have, um, we've, we just don't have to make pleas for money and say we're kind of at the, you know, at the death's door financially. Um, I think we've had two times 
in our history that we've put in a, a discretionary spending freeze with the ministry team leaders. And that's a credit to you and your um, generous uh, faithfulness to, to the church. So we, we've been very blessed over the years. One of the reasons that I talk each January about money, though, is because we, we don't want to go to, um, we talk about money just when we need it. Because our, our vantage point when it comes to money is that um, God, God's more interested, God's less interested about us having our needs met and much more interested about you and me faithfully following Jesus. And we could have all of our needs met and then some here, and yet some of you not be faithfully following Jesus because either others are covering your base <clears throat> or simply, um, well, because others are covering your base and there's adequate funds. That doesn't mean that you're where God wants you to be financially. It doesn't mean I'm where God wants me to be financially. Now, I, I want to do a little background today, especially for those of you who might be new, about what we understand about giving uh, biblically, how much a Christian should give, and so forth. And I also want you to, t- to know that when we talk about giving uh, on a Sunday like this, we're not just talking about money you put in the offering. Uh, my wife and I uh, not only support this church, we have parachurch ministries that we uh, believe in, that we uh, support financially. Uh, we have missionaries that we personally give to, some that are sent out by this church, some that we've been supporting for decades. Um, we have money that we give to individuals as the year goes on. We feel like God's laying their needs uh, on our heart for it to become our need as well. So when we talk about giving, it's not just the money that you put in the offering. It's all of the money that you relinquish that you're doing so because you love Jesus Christ and he's prompted you to do so. Now, a lot of uh, churches, or I should say some churches, teach that uh, what a Christian should give is 10% of their income. When Betty and I first got married, um, I don't think I gave anything for like a year and a half, even though I would have grown up having that modeled by my my parents. And then we started giving 10%. um, Grew up in the church. I always heard that's what you should give. Um, But that was 10% on on net. Um, Took a while before God began to break through and say, well, you know, I gave you all of that money. The fact that the government takes some of it doesn't mean that you should figure it uh, on your net. You should figure it on your gross. After all, you shouldn't say, well, the grocery store takes some of it, and the electric companies take some of it, and and my landlord takes some of it, and soon you don't have anything to give off of. So I began to do 10% off of uh, gross. And then as the years went on, God began to speak uh, to Betty and I uh, about just a passion for serving Christ in a financial way, and we began to, to change that years ahead. Uh, that being said, uh, this idea of giving 10% comes from the Old Testament. The Old Testament Jews would give uh, a tithe, and the word literally means a tenth. Uh, the problem is, as you start, if you read uh, extensively in the Pentateuch, you'll find out they didn't just give one-tenth, they actually gave three-tenths, two each year and then one every third year. Now, we have to qualify that because the second tenth they didn't really give away. They actually kept it for themselves. It was prescribed by God, but they kept it for themselves to, to buy party supplies. So for religious holidays, you're going to buy uh, the food, food stuffs and so forth, Uh, So you're really spending it on yourself. So I don't think that that one really counts in terms of trying to make some correlation between what they did and what we do. 
So you take, uh, they, they were given the first tenth of all of their uh, crops and so forth. The first tenth went to the Levites. They're kind of like the, uh, the church officers or people who work around the tabernacle and then the temple. And then the second tenth that was taken every thir- three years was for the poor in the land. So that would mean roughly the old te- average Old Testament Jewish family gave not 10%, um, but 13.3% of their income. Which I find intriguing because when tithing is taught as, as this is what Christians should do today, it's taught as 10%, period, end of story. We don't teach tithing here. We don't teach that you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you should give 10%. Um, we also don't say you can just kind of give what you want in the sense that um, I, I'm going to give a dime and that's, God is happy with that. Uh, just some background here. Um, let me take you to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. All this is introductory stuff. Sorry about that. We've got a main passage coming up eventually. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning of verse 6. <clears throat> it says this. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds, and I should contextualize this for you, the um, Paul is writing about the matter of giving and helping, in this case, other Christians who are poor and in need. So he says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. And so he's, he's c- comparing a follower of Jesus to a farmer. And so a farmer plants much seed and then he gets a big crop. So if you're a Christian, you plant much seed financially, you get a big crop. Now, unfortunately, prosperity gospel folks take this to mean if you give God $100, he'll give you 1000 back. That, that's not what this passage uh, says. The one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how you, you, so this is upon you, Individual Christians, nobody should tell you how much to give. You should each decide in your heart how much to give and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. I was at a concert here some time ago where a parachurch organization made a pitch to support them. And I kid you not, the pitch went on for 25 minutes. By the end of the 25 minutes, I was so mad, I wouldn't give even if God told me to give. Well, I hope I would have, but I was really frustrated. That pressure, you know, kind of behind the back, twisting your arm behind the back, you better give, you know. God's going to hit you if you don't give. This says, no, 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 don't do that. For God loves a person who gives what? Cheerfully. I've told people already, you know, if you part with that gift in the offering or whoever you give it to and you're mad about it, don't give it. God does, listen, God doesn't need your money, right? God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? If he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he can butcher some of it if he's short in cash. God owns your gold, your silver, your house, your car, mine. He owns all of that. He doesn't need to beg, borrow, or steal from us. God has found many, many ways to provide for the things that he wants to, to occur, and he doesn't need your money. 
More typically, it's that we need to give in terms of our, what God wants to do in our lives, to grow us, to, to stretch us, to make our faith more rich where we can actually trust him, to stop depending on all the other things that we really bank on so much. I'm really convinced that in part God designed giving just so he can increase our faith. Because every time you write a check, every time you give a little bit more, it's like, but will I have enough for me? And the scripture says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So God has promised he's going to do that. David says in the Psalms, I've never seen the children of the righteous begging bread. God knows what you have, what needs you have, and he will provide. In other words, if he prompts you to give away more than you think you can give away, he'll always meet your needs. He goes on to say, God will generously provide, verse 8, I don't think this is on the screen. God will generously provide all you need, then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Uh, so this is what we teach here. We, we teach that you should give what God wants you to give. I happen to think that 10% is a great place to start. I think 13.3% is an even greater place to start for this reason. The Jewish people looked ahead to Jesus. They, they, they knew about a coming Messiah, but they didn't understand or grasp the uh, infinite <laughs> work that he was going to do in terms of uh, taking away their sins completely, didn't grasp the fullness of the gospel of Christ, and yet this is what they were giving. Now we're over here on the other side of the cross, and we grasp, oh my goodness, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of, of God in him. Uh, he came to earth and, and laid aside his scepter and his throne and his crown. Oh, my goodness. In other words, this should elicit the kind of generosity that I think God seeks from us. I, uh, and one of the things that we, we promote here is sacrificial giving as opposed to tipped giving. Um, a number of years ago, I've actually had to go to, back to three people in the congregation and ask their forgiveness because in all three cases, these people were really struggling in their lives financially. They just weren't making ends meet. And, and as a pastor, I kind of, I wanted to relieve them of, of this summons to give. And, and I remember one time I was in my Bible, I don't even remember what passage I was in, but I became deeply convicted that I was, I was hurting these people by telling them, you know, you're in a hard spot financially, don't give. I, I shouldn't, that shouldn't have been my call. That should have been God's call. And uh, I actually had a conversation with a brother last Sunday about this. He said, he said, all the things that you've done to me over the years, he says, that's, that's the only one you ask forgiveness for. It was, it was a joke. <laughs> I, th- I think. Um, and he was talking about where he's at now and, you know, how God's, you know, pushed him, and he, he's, he is giving. He's, he's not where he'd like to be, uh, but he's giving, and, and he's delighting in it. He's finding uh, great, great joy in it. And so uh, we don't want to push you to give here, but we want to push you to give. In other words, we want to be God's ambassadors here to do all that God wants you to do, and uh, whatever he leads you to do um, this is what we're good with. But here's the kicker. And then we'll read some of our other scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. To me, this is the most profound uh, verse in all the New Testament about giving. Now, Paul, <laughs> Paul himself was not uh, um, opposed to doing a little bit of arm twisting. 
And in chapter 8, he wrote, uh, he's writing this letter to the Christians in Corinth, and he's urging them to help out with the offering that he was taking for the poor Christians, and I mean that uh, poor. They, were, they just didn't have much money. In Jerusalem, he had been taking an offering around at the different churches that he had planted and, and cultivated uh, to take back to the Jerusalem Christians. And he was saying, after all, you're, you're spiritual descendants of the Christians in Jerusalem. It, it would be only right for you to share with them financially um, now that you're, you have the gospel now, you should share with them financially just as they shared with you spiritually. And apparently the Corinthians were kind of like, eh, I'm not sure we're going to take that offering after all. And so Paul in this chapter says, well, uh, you should follow through in what you promised to do. And by the way, all these other churches, the Philippian churches, Macedonian churches, they, they all gave generously, even though they didn't have much to work with. They really, they really andied up in this offering. And then he says this in verse 8, I am not commanding you to do this. But I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. Oh, ouch. In other words, he is tying together our generous spirit and desire to give with our love for Jesus Christ. He wasn't talking about his love for Paul, their love for Paul. He wasn't even talking about their love for the Christians in Jerusalem. He was talking about their love for Jesus Christ. So each year... Um, I, I reevaluate, Lord, I spend time in prayer. God, what do you want me to give this year? And so sometimes, you know, the percentage is here. Sometimes it's here. Sometimes it's here. But always, God, what do you want? I don't want somebody else telling me what to give. What do you want me to give? And then I try to follow through on that. Sometimes, in, you know, come August, you have some unexpected carbo or something. You're like, God, could I have some of that back? And it always comes back to this verse. Do you love me? Do you love me? I'm convinced that greed and stinginess go together. I'm convinced that worship and generosity go together. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 12? This morning I want to talk uh, about our earthly longings and then about heavenly longings. Earthly longings and heavenly longings in this first passage speaks about our earthly longings. Luke chapter, uh, I'm sorry, did I say 15? Should have said 12. Chapter 12, verse 15. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. Then Jesus said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. And the reason I talk about greed when we talk about giving is because I think giving is this wonderful way to um, tackle my, our innate greed at its root. Um, giving just tackles greed. And Jesus gives this warning, and, and it's a warning that is echoed throughout the pages of Scripture again and again. Uh, those of you who smoke cigarettes know that on the outside of the cigarette box... Uh, there's a warning from the U.S. Surgeon General. Um, there's actually four warnings. They rotate on a quarterly basis. And uh, they say th awful things like smoking causes lung cancer, heart disease, emphysema, and may complicate pregnancy. Here's another one. Cigarette smoke contains carbon monoxide. 
Carbon monoxide, isn't that the stuff you pump into your car when you're trying to take your life? Pretty deadly stuff. And the hope is uh, by the government, not by the manufacturers of the cigarette, that when you take out a pack of cigarettes, you'll accidentally see this maybe and be convinced by it that you shouldn't smoke cigarettes because they're harmful to you. And we see the same kinds of continuously echoing warnings from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible about this matter of greed. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 uh, talk about how the love of money is the root of all evil. Remember that? Not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, That it tempts people to sin. Uh, It ensnares people. It produces ruin and destruction. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 5 says this. and, And listen, as Americans especially, we need to listen to this and don't just blow it off. Ephesians 5.5 5 says that greed is idolatry. And we think, often think of idolatry as people bowing down before gold idols. Well, the gold idol might be your stock portfolio. It might be your home. It might be your retirement fund. It might be that piece of property that you want to get yet. It says greed is idolatry, and then it gets worse. And no idolater will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we Americans need to feel that down to our toes because most of us are wealthy by the world's standards and have the opportunities to get more and more and more and more and more and more stuff and to save more and more money for more and more things. Now, you say, wait a minute. Was if they're saying a greedy person will not get into the kingdom of God, does that, are we now some, somehow back at works righteousness that you have to do something and, and not do other things in order to enter the kingdom of God? No, the point is what we do with our money speaks loudly about the reality of our heart. Back to 2 Corinthians 8.8, 8, I want to test the measure of your love. And so if greed is what marks us, if we are idolaters, we will, idolatry is loving something more than we love God. We will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I, I want us to feel that and not just run from and say, that doesn't apply to me. Only God can t- determine whether or not that does or doesn't. I just want us to give it some consideration. Jesus is not saying... That if you do this, if you buy a new house, if you buy a new fishing boat, if you, um, if you buy another car, um, if you buy new stocks that really do well, he's not saying that you don't go to heaven. He's simply saying if we, act, if we crave money more than we crave him, it's telling. And this following incident we're going to read is, uh, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, is evidence of that. Luke chapter 18, beginning verse 18. The story that uh, if you've been a Christian a while, you've probably heard more than one occasion. Once a religious leader asked you, we don't really know that. The NLT has provided that adjective. We don't know if it's a religious or civic leader. In fact, it's, it's, the text simply says leader, the Greek text. Um, and it's more likely he was a civil leader than a religious leader because of his youth. He was a young man. We know that from other scriptures. And... Uh, 
Jewish people did not uh, advance young people. You were still young, 30 to 35 years old in Jewish culture. So once a leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. In fact, they wouldn't even call the rabbis good. It's interesting. Jesus was not renouncing that label. He was simply saying, do you realize what you're saying by calling me good? Do you realize the implications of that? But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. He was hoping he knew them better than Burt Reynolds did, I guess. Uh, You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Now, what's interesting, even if you're uh, very um, limited in your math, you know that we're short a few commandments, right? There are ten commandments. We don't have all of them. And in fact, the only ones that Jesus mentions are ones that have to do with how do we treat other people. If you know, uh, if you've ever studied the Ten Commandments, you know some of them focus on how we treat God, and then the rest focus on how we treat people. All he's addressed are the commandments that that speak about how we treat other people. And the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. And you can just feel the sense of satisfaction. He wants to know how he's going to go to heaven. And now he's hearing, oh, I'm already there. I'm, I'm in. I'm good to go. Then Jesus, when Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Now, the man did ask, what, what, what do I need to do? What should I do to inherit eternal life? And so here he's, Jesus is responding in kind. This is something you need to do. And we might get really antsy at this point and say, wait a minute, I thought trusting in Jesus Christ is what gets us across the line from uh, death unto life. That's true. But Jesus went after his idols because there, there can be no faith without dealing with idols. And Jesus goes right after his idols. One thing you still haven't done, Sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. It doesn't say it here, but we know from other places that this story is told that he left. He didn't just hang around to see if Jesus had some other points, he just left heard this he became very sad for he was very rich and then jesus said this how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of god in fact it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god and some of you have heard that this refers to a gate the needle gate in jerusalem not true some of you have heard that this describes a um, uh, geolog- uh, geological outcropping out in the desert that's sizable but tough for camel. Not true. When Jesus said needle, he meant a little sewing needle like you would use with a very, very tiny hole. And he says it's harder for American Christians who are all rich, harder for a camel to go through the, uh, harder for us to get to heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That's what he's saying. Disciples are at a loss because they thought that being rich was proof that God loved you 
and thought you were more awesome than the next guy. And that if you were poor, that God didn't think much of you and you didn't have much going for you with God. And so they, they say, well, <laughs> if rich people, if it's hard for rich people to get saved, then how can anybody be saved? Verse 27, what is impossible? Jesus answers, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Peter said, we've left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. Now, this man came to Jesus with a heavenly longing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And yet when push came to shove, realized that his earthly longings outstripped his heavenly longings. And I, I suspect that, again, for us in this country, um, it is ever so easy for us to tip God our 10% and to buy all the other things that we love to have and live our life the way we see our peers living them and say, I've done my bit. I don't know that that's true for me. I certainly don't know if that's true for you. But we make a calculated misstep not to ask God this question. Do you want more from me than I've been giving you? Jesus goes right right after this man's self-righteousness. And keep all the commandments? Oh, yeah. You still lack one thing. And he went right after his questionable love for God. I kept the commandments, but I have all this stuff. When push comes to shove and I decide between following Jesus or following my stuff, it's an easy call. What if God asked this of you? Now, we kind of reassure ourselves because we know that no place else in the Bible does God ever ask anybody to do that. We're like, oh, this was just this one guy. Only this one guy has this idolatry problem. <laughs> None of the rest of us have this idolatry problem. Really? You know, and again, we look at this like, kind of like the, the greed verse. Is, is this socialism? I mean, is Jesus really advocating people going out... <clears throat> kind of wealth redistribution. I thought Bernie Sanders lost. If that's how we look at it, you you missed the point. Or if we look at it as works righteousness, you have to do something in order to be acceptable to God, you missed the point if that's it too. It is idolatry that Jesus is tackling. That's where he wanted the man to go. What am I, who Or what do I worship? And this is what I think. I think this is what Jesus wants to say to 21st century Americans. Christians. Is everything you have, every material possession, every dollar you have, your checking account, your stocks, your investments, your retirement fund. I, this whole business of retirement fund, 
um, I think God wants to speak to us about. Because increasingly we build that up because after all, we're living longer and longer and what if our money runs out? In other words, this is kind of rationalization that really makes sense on the face of it. Is it in God we trust? Or is it in retirement fund we trust? And in the process, potentially tying up money and dollars that God wants to release for the advance of his kingdom or to minister to people around you in need, around me in need. I think, heaven's, I think Jesus' point is that heaven's population of rich people is so small because this greed just creates hard idols out of a hard cash and hard currency and all that it buys, all that it will buy. Now, when Peter and the other disciples questioned Jesus on, well, we've given up all this stuff for you, Jesus talks to them about heavenly rewards. Every time I sin, and in the wake of that, and I repent, and I ask God for his forgiveness, I realize, unfortunately, it doesn't fix me, but I realize I love the reward of this life more than I love the reward of that life. I sinned because I wanted something, whatever it was. I sinned because I wanted something here and now more than I wanted the approval of God. And if I fail to give God what he has asked me to give this year because I want another car, I hate the car I have. I just hate it. I was telling my son yesterday, um, we were down at their place in Virginia, we were filling uh, the back of the car up with some stuff, and he's like, you're going to lock that back up? I'm like, no, I hope somebody steals it. Well, he says, if you want that, just let your key in it. I said, I'm looking around at your neighbor's cars. Nobody here is going to steal that. My wife gets upset. She likes her little car. And, you know, and we joke about this at the shopping center, and she starts to lock it up or at Lowe's. I'm like, don't lock it. Maybe somebody will take it. She's like, I like my little car. I'm like, I hate it. You'll like the next one a lot better. But anyway, I think about, you know, the money that I'm giving away. I'm like, I could, if I could keep some of that, I could get that car replaced sooner. I like the earthly rewards really more than I love the heavenly rewards. And Jesus tells his disciples, look, whatever you give up here, whatever you give up here, you're going to get it back there in spades. The only question is, what are you working for? Are you working for what's here and doesn't last? Are you working for what's stored up for you in heaven where the stuff doesn't rust, it doesn't get moth-eaten, nobody steals it? 2 Corinthians chapter 8 again. I want to wrap up with this. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. We, just, we read that verse 8 that talks about the measuring of our love <clears throat> that Christ does. 
at verse 9. <clears throat> you know, we often talk about here at Keystone that the, the gospel affects everything. And this helps us see how the gospel affects our giving, our giving and our storing up of stuff. Verse 9, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, meaning when he was in heaven, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. I wasn't talking about making you rich here on earth. He was talking about making you rich spiritually. So as we close this morning, I I, want to ask you if there are any of the following things that God might want you to do. First of all, to repent of greed. Now, I, I know many of you, and I, I know your hearts um, to a degree, but I don't know them fully, but God does. And my guess is if there is a weed of greed, hey, that rhymes, a weed of greed in your heart, God knows it, it's going to reveal it to you this morning and want you to pull it. Maybe you need to repent of greed. And again, greed can masquerade as a lot of very noble things. Again, that retirement fund. I'm just taking, trying to take care of myself, trying to take care of my family. Um, you know, the vacations that uh, we love, nothing wrong with them in and of themselves unless God says, I want you to take half your money and, and spend it here instead. Uh, we, can, we can justify greed by making comparisons. We say, I, all these people, whether it's in church or whatever, all these other Christians, have they have so much more than I do, and they can give more. God doesn't deal with us like that. So maybe, maybe you need to repent of greed. Maybe you need to reconsider the giving amount. What we do, as I said, each year we uh, try to pray through, God, what do you want us to give this year? And then we... Uh, in addition to that, we're trying to give to people in need throughout the year. But uh, maybe for you, you're going to do, we're here in early January, maybe you need to pray. Maybe you and your spouse need to pray and say, God, are we giving what you want us to give? Or do you have something, do you want us to give a, a bigger percentage? Or do you want us to get involved in a missionary's uh, ministry or a parachurch's organization? Or maybe uh, we know some person in need and we, we want to kind of give to them regularly directly and then we say oh we can't do that we don't get a tax deduction who cares can I get an amen on that well that was weak I mean God don't give money because you get a tax deduction give money because God wants you to give so maybe God wants you to consider your giving amount And lastly, just rethink your giving possibilities. Again, maybe you're you're giving it mostly or all of the church. I think that's where your priority as a believer, that's that's a priority place. Um, But there might be other organizations, other missionaries, other individuals that God wants you to now begin getting involved in. Here's, Here's what I think. I don't think that um, back to what we said at the beginning, I don't think that cultivating the, pers- the, the percentage is nearly as important as cultivating the passion for Jesus Christ. Your giving will flow out from that. My giving will flow out from that. Don't calculate the percentage nearly as much as you cultivate the passion 
for him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your provision for us. My goodness, you're so generous. And no more so than when we see what we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh Forgive us, Lord, when we are marked by stinginess and uh, maybe call it thriftiness, but it's really stinginess. Forgive us and uh, make our hearts well up with generosity um, toward your purposes, um, toward people, maybe even starting to carry more cash along with us in the hopes that you're going to lead us to, to just kind of spontaneously give to someone in need and and we would be wrong not to close this out by saying thank you for how generous you've been to us and not just spiritually but financially as well we look at around at the world and say wow we are blessed we are blessed so grateful we love you lord and may our love show in our giving in jesus name